didn't like him before, so he's back with more. Shaft. Shaft is back. In Shaft's big score. He looks like Cal Asby to me. What's left of him? What did he tell you, Shaft? Stay away from black hunkies with big, flat feet. Last time he was nice. This time he's ice. We go to a lot of funerals, Shaft, Willie and me. One day we'll drop in on yours. Shaft is back in action with Bumpy and Willie and a new box or two. Why don't you take your things off? Hey, wait a minute. I didn't mean all that. You beat the hell out of Queens. What do you want from me, Shaft? Italian is serious. Shaft is back, tougher than ever. Caught in the middle of a red-hot numbers war. Looks like it's payday, Mr. Kelly. Drop the guns and freeze. If this baby starts kicking, it won't stop, so nobody get cute. See Shab score? <laughs> you gotta ask your mama again. Shab's big score from MGM. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. My son came back from summer camp having rediscovered Magic the Gathering. I feel like I probably mentioned this around the same time last year when we were recording, when he had come back from camp having rediscovered MTG, but here we are. We are playing Commander, which was not around when I was 14 playing Magic the Gathering, but seems to be all the rage now, and I am learning all, all the new rules, and I may actually be going to Friday Night Magic this week for the first time in... 20 years. <laughs> so wish me luck. <laughs> well, good luck with that. I've never been able to get that into it. I have the core deck and a uh, bunch of different kinds of booster packs, including the Monty Python deck. Yeah, well, <laughs> they've now got a whole Lord of the Rings series. But like my son 
insisted that we buy the one ring. It's not like the expensive, you know, $10,000 foil version of this card, but still $50 for a magic card is a lot of money. Wow. We have a new top downloaded episode. No way. Yep. I didn't think this would happen because Skyfall was for the longest time our far ahead leader most downloaded episode of all time on our show. But recently, it has been eclipsed by another episode. Conan the Barbarian? Nope. Lay it on me. Masters of the Universe. What? No way! (laughs) So Skyfall falls to Masters of the Universe. Oh, man. Skeletor and all. (laughs) It's kind of funny because Skyfall is like one of the best movies we've ever done. Like qual- In terms of quality of film. And, and Masters of the Universe is one of the <laughs> weakest films we've ever But it just goes to show the best movies don't necessarily make the best podcasts, I guess. Well, and that episode was real fun to record. That was a blast. Let's get into Shaft's big score. So we, we're on a roll here because we did The Saint, which went from 62 to 69. And then we did The Man Who Haunted Himself from 1970. And then we did Shaft from 1971. And now we're about to do Shaft's Big Score from 1972. You got something to tell us about the year? Yeah. First major event, January 30th, was Bloody Sunday, when the British Army killed 14 unarmed nationalist civil rights marchers in Northern Ireland. Interesting to remember that that was going on at this time. February 21st to 28th, President Nixon made an unprecedented eight-day visit to the People's Republic of China and met with Mao Zedong, for all you folks interested in U.S.-China relations nowadays. March 22nd, the 92nd U.S. Congress voted to send the proposed Equal Rights Amendment to the states for ratification. It, of course, did not succeed. (laughs) Also in March... Eisenstadt versus Baird, the Supreme Court of the U.S. rules that unmarried people have the right to access contraception on the same basis as married couples, relevant to our leading hero, Shaft, I'm sure. April 13th, the Universal Postal Union decides to recognize the People's Republic of China as the only legitimate Chinese representative effectively expelling the Republic of China administering Taiwan. So in case you were ever wondering what got us into this crazy mess with Taiwan and China and the politics around recognizing Taiwan, blame the post office. No, I'm just (laughs) kidding. My dad's a mailman, actually, so I don't blame the post office. But this was an interesting bit of history that I didn't know. I, I had no idea. The Universal Postal Union is sort of like the United Nations official post office or or postal system, and they apparently started this whole problem. So interesting history to look up. Totally irrelevant to Shaft. (laughs) Uh, I did not know that, but okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, April 29th was the fourth anniversary of the Broadway musical Hair, which if you haven't listened to Hair lately it or ever uh definitely recommend it it was a show put on oh come on um 
put it on when I was in college and I was in the stage crew and even the stage crew got topless during the um, naked scenes in, in the show. But anyway. Um, so hippie. It's so, so hippie. So oh. for, the, for the anniversary of the show, um, there was a free concert at Central Park followed by dinner at the Four Seasons for people involved. And there, 13 Black Panther protesters and the show's co-author, Jim Rotto, were arrested for disturbing the peace and smoking pot. <laughs> May 26th, Richard Nixon and Leonid Brezhnev signed the SALT-1 Treaty in Moscow and anti-ballistic missile treaty agreements. So just a reminder, the Cold War still going on during all this time. Although Nixon's going to show up in the news a lot in 1972 because uh, this was also the year that the Watergate scandal happened, where five White House operatives were arrested for attempted burglary of the DNC at the Watergate Hotel. Then on June 20th, Shaft's Big Score premiered in New York City. I don't have a lot to say about the production notes because uh, this went into production before Shaft was even finished. Ernest Tidyman had originally planned a story where Shaft is hired by Hasidic Jews to investigate a diamond heist or something like that, which was called Shaft Among the Jews. <laughs> God, what? <laughs> Shaft Among the Jews. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And that, in fact, if you read the Shaft novels, the second novel is Shaft Among the Jews. And a lot of people think it's the best of the Shaft novels. I have never read it and don't know anything else about it, but I'm super curious. And I'm speechless. <laughs> Just what a title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, they rejected that. So instead they made the third Shaft novel, which is Shaft's Big Score. It was a bit of a big score as far as budget goes because the budget of Shaft was $500,000. This one was approaching $2 million. It shot on location in New York City, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which we'll talk about later, but also Cypress Hill Cemetery, features in a couple of scenes. The first thing you're going to notice about this film when it starts is that it doesn't have the Isaac Hayes Academy Award-winning theme, and that's because... MGM couldn't come to a deal with Hayes. He wanted a lot more money, and they refused. Audiences and critics do not rate this movie as highly as the first one. But since it is such a New York film, I have to go into what the New York Times said about it. The New York Times movie critic Roger Greenspan said, quote, the new shaft follows a new and glossier and tidier image, an image that is much more James Bond than Bogart. That's where we're at. Uh, <laughs> bigger budget, bigger explosions. Is it a better film? We'll get into that. It has a great opening scene, I have to say. Well, tell us about it. It starts off, we're hearing a phone ring. We're pretty sure that it's Shaft's phone. And that he is otherwise occupied and not picking up for a while. He eventually gets to the phone and this old friend of his, Asby, tells him that he's already deposited $5,000 in his bank account. 
as an advance on a case that he's hoping Shaft will take. And, you know, Shaft is like, I'm kind of in the middle of something here, being this lady that he's in, in bed with. And then a few beats later, Asby says, well, I need you to come right away. And by the way, if you happen to see my sister, tell her to, to be careful, tell her to watch out. And we immediately find out Shaft says, yeah, I think I can put a hand on her. <laughs> And she is, she is the woman in the bed. And so, slaps her ass. And slaps her ass, yeah. yeah. And just like, you know, another great scene to establish that Shaft is about to get pulled into a new set of intrigue, but he's the supreme ladies' man to the point of, like, you could call him, and no matter what you're calling him about, there's a good chance he's in bed with your sister or girlfriend or whoever at the time that you call. And she's black this time. We mentioned in the last episode that black women weren't too happy about Shaft with a white woman in the last episode. And so now, for the rest of the Shaft series, all of his lovers will be black. This is parodied, by the way, in Undercover Brother, if you've ever seen that, where (laughs) his weakness is white women. Uh, That's black man's kryptonite, right? Undercover Brother is one of a lot of the... um, There was a, a whole spate of black exploitation parodies that was one of them i'm gonna get you sucker is the one that really kicked it off and is worth seeing if you haven't seen that but anyway back to shaft shaft goes to meet asby in his office and discovers that the office has been blown to smithereens and no signs of asby didn't get there in time the cops show up and are also looking around at the wreckage as does Asby's partner, Kelly, shows up on the scene. And Shaft pretty quickly hones in on Kelly as being a, a not great dude who may, may or may not have been involved in the events. But importantly, we see Kelly kind of looking around for something and he finds a safe. So I believe we already saw before all this, after he gets off the phone, we see that he goes to the his hands anyway, go to the safe take stacks of cash out of it, put it in a paper bag, and then he goes next door to this funeral home. Yeah. And opens a casket and hides all these stacks of money in a funeral casket. Yes, so we as the audience know what's going on, but none of the other characters know where the money is. Of course... The police think that Shaft did it, immediately bring him in for questioning this guy, Captain Bolin, who's not as cool as Andrazi from the last film. Well, Andrazi was just a lieutenant. The captain we never really saw. That's right. What's really interesting about this is, if you remember from Shaft, Shaft takes place in Manhattan, and Bumpy is based out of Harlem. He is the Mr. Big of Harlem. And the mafia is downtown in Little Italy. We talked about that. So when Shaft goes to see Andrazi, he's going downtown to Lower Manhattan. This is at the 113th Precinct, which is in Queens. So what we're getting here is really interesting if you know New York, because there is a Burroughs thing going on here. So he's got some inns in Manhattan, but Captain Bolin, 
who is black, by the way, not a white captain like in Manhattan. Captain Bolin, he has no ins here in Queens. Different borough, different rules, and that will become important, the fact that this is in Queens later. One of the things I love about this film in the Shaft films in general is the sense of it throws you into the deep end right at the beginning, where you're not exactly sure, you know, who to trust or what's going on. And we start to figure out what might be happening by following Shaft around, but also by seeing some behind-the-scenes intrigue this time around between the different mob characters. In the last film, almost everything was from Shaft's point of view. We got very, very little, if any, scenes that didn't prominently feature him. But in this film, we get a lot more of the wheeling and dealing between the mob folks, including following Johnny Kelly around, the business partner of Asby, recently deceased, (laughs) under suspicious circumstances. And we know that Kelly owes about 250 grand in gambling debts to another mob boss. Right. It's the Asby Kelly funeral home. They jointly own this business. And in fact, it turns out that when Asby dies, Asby's sister inherits his, his half of the business. Shaft lets Asby's sister know that she's got to watch herself and he gives her very strict instructions. He puts her up at his place. He right? puts her up at his place and basically says, like, shoot anybody who tries to come inside. And meanwhile goes off to investigate Kelly, who Shaft figures at least has to know something, even if he's not the one who did it. So he manages to find out that Asby and Kelly were actually running a numbers racket and that the funeral parlor and insurance businesses that they were running were just a front. However, Asby was planning to give his profits to charity to help build a nursery school. Kelly was trying to get out of horrible gambling debt. So we've got an immediate dichotomy between good community-focused mobsters and other mobsters. Just like we did with The Godfather, I think it's time to talk about real mobsters here because Bumpy Jonas, played by Moses Gunn, as as far as I know, only major character other than Shaft that appears in more than one of the Shaft films, is based on Bumpy Johnson, who was the real... Mr. Big of Harlem that ran the numbers racket. Now, there were a couple of times in the first movie, in Shaft, that they mentioned the numbers. I was going to bring it up. There's one time when he goes knocking on doors trying to get information, and someone asks him, oh, did you know what the numbers are? What Mm. the number is, you know? And I was going to talk about that, but it's just kind of a minor footnote. It's only mentioned a couple of times. But that was the big source of income for the black mafia. They eventually got into all the other stuff too, prostitution, gambling, drugs, all that stuff. But it was really built on the numbers racket. Anyway, Bumpy Johnson was the Harlem kingpin. So Bumpy Jonas, who's our fictional version of him in this, the numbers, that's his business, right? Now he runs it in Harlem, but 
we find out pretty early on that he's interested in moving into Queens. So Kelly basically has run up these big debts to the Italian mafia, the Sicilian mafia, the, though they're never specifically mentioned as such. We know it's the Italians. They're running this numbers racket out of the insurance company next door to the funeral parlor and the funeral parlor, laundering the profits through those businesses. Well, and there is an interesting moment where Shaft has a conversation with, I think, Captain Bolin, where he's saying, like, this is a lottery, just like the legal lottery that happens. So, you know, what's what's the big deal, basically? Like, in terms of um, how we measure whether Asby was a good guy or not, because... Bolin, I think, is ready to just chalk this up as they're all mafia scumbags. And Shaft, either because he's already been paid in advance and feels obligated from that end, maybe it's because he's sleeping with Asby's sister, or maybe it's because he really actually believes in Asby as a person, is invested enough in solving this case that he is getting involved in it without the same incentive that he had in the last film. Right. He's not getting paid $50 an hour. He got his 5000 up front and he could have just walked away, but he doesn't. And this says a lot about Shaft as well. Yeah, he'll stick his neck out for a brother man. Yeah. <laughs> he has to find them. So there's, a, there's just a street guy that goes around and collects the money for Kelly. And he grabs him in a hallway and holds him at gunpoint and forces him to reveal Kelly's location. He goes to Kelly's apartment. And Kelly's not there. Kelly has gone to talk to the mob boss, Mescola. Just before he left, he got into a fight with his girlfriend. So she's easily persuaded by Shaft to let him into the apartment. And then they chain the door and have sex. Yeah, this seemed like a very classic Bond girl scenario where, like, James Bond is actually busy investigating something else related to one of the villains or sub-villains, and the mistress or girlfriend of that sub-villain happens to be there, and they happen to have 15 minutes alone together. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Kelly's downtown talking to Mascola. Mascola keeps extending and extending the deadline for this $250,000 that he owes him. And finally, he's had it, so... He's going to give him more time, but on the condition that he gets cut in for half of the numbers racket in Queens. So in the first movie, we had the mafia wanting to move into Harlem. That didn't succeed. Now they're looking to move into Queens. He comes back, starts banging on the door. Shaft leaves by the back. There turns out there's a back door. Leaves by the back door. And then Rita, Kelly's mistress, taunts him at the front door and then grabs her bags, and also leaves out the back door. Chef goes back to Cal's sister and sort of gives her the lowdown on what was going on. He has to break the news to her that he was doing this illegal gambling thing out of the funeral parlor. Yeah, that the sister didn't know about the shady side of the business. She thought she was inheriting a totally legitimate outfit. And Shaft 
reiterates that Aspie had been planning to use these ill-gotten gains for the benefit of the community. And she should maybe continue with, with that wish. But in the meantime, she's got to stay safe because there are all these mob interests in this business that she now owns half of. Kelly finds out the cops haven't found any money in the safe. So when they got the safe open, the 250000 that he was relying on still isn't there. So he then is in real trouble. So he then goes to Bumpy and makes the same deal with Bumpy. Bumpy is going to cover his gambling debts, but Bumpy wants half of the numbers racket business. He wants more than half. He wants a 60-40 split, which is an interesting... He originally says half, and then he changes his mind and says 60-40. And why the extra 10? Because he knows that the mafia is looking at moving into Queens and that in order to get Kelly out of this mess, his guys might end up in conflict with the mafia. What he doesn't know is that Kelly's double dealing here and really there's now has given away 50% to the mafia, 60% to Bumpy. And he only has half to begin with. And he only has half to begin with (laughs) because so like, so clearly something's going to go down here. This was a little bit confusing to follow while it was happening but then enough of the explanation of what was going on was repeated before the end of the film, you know, before the the finales and the chases. Like, I, I knew what all the stakes were. But this is a very complicated plot for a film that on its surface seems like it's just, you know, like sex and car chases and, and a good time. But like the intricacy of how these different mafias relate together is really interesting for a f- film like this. It's a complicated plot. Chap goes to this club to confront Mescola. First, he's out watching the regular dancers. I say the regular dancers, because we're going to get into some serious exotic dancers here in a minute. But he's watching the regular dancers, and he talks to a cocktail waitress, slash maybe a prostitute. We're yeah. not sure about going into the back room. But uh, Kelly sees him out there and tells Mescola that Chef's here and that he had promised to take care of Shaft, and he's right out there. And so they're going to take care of him. He comes back and there's this gambling going on in the back room. And that's what the back room action is. And I noticed the croupier there was Gordon Parks. Mm. He makes a little appearance there. He goes to talk to Mascola and Mascola says that he sent two men you know, these flower delivery guys that we skipped over here, but he sent them to kill him earlier. They failed. So then all of his guys just pile on him in the back room and start punching him and kicking him and stuff like that in this little side room. And this is intercut with these scenes of these body-painted dancers, one in silver and one in gold, with amazing, like, headdresses and everything like that. Unbelievable. Like, yeah. Yeah, this scene is genius. And one of the things 
that I like about it is that you still get a sense of the degree of violence that this gang of Italian mafiosos are inflicting upon Shaft, but it doesn't have the same kind of voyeuristic, like, like Shaft is, isn't being, um, I don't want to say objectified, but just like, like a lot of, a lot of folks, um, notice that in depictions of violence against black people in cinema that it's repeating trauma in a way that is really you know not not empowering and you know not just uh counterproductive to to what they're hoping hoping to see and so juxtaposing this violence with incredible jazz music just like the, the music happening during this scene dominates the oral landscape. Like, you're not hearing really any of the punching or kicking sounds. It's really just the music dominating. And then these dancers covered in body paint, which are sort of evoking kind of a, a an intensity and, uh, you know, sense of sense of power or being uh, and also being overcome by power it's just like they're they're able to communicate what's going on without the focus being as much on the violence being done to shaft but do you still get the same gist it's interesting too because the scenes are intercut it keeps going back and forth between these dancers and the beat down that shaft's getting and the beat down that shaft's getting is in slow motion and the tempo of this dance is super fast and so it's like fast and slow, fast and slow, going back and forth between the two of them. Super interesting. Yeah. In the last film, I said that there was some music where it was worth watching the whole film just for the music during some of the chase scenes. Like, it's worth watching the whole film just to see how this scene fits in with all of it. Okay. So he is dumped in the trash in the alley and limps off. But he did find out that Kelly knows where the money is now. And the money was hidden in Asby's casket and buried in Cypress Hills Cemetery. Shaft does get revenge on Mascola. He yes. shows up uh, hiding behind, pretending to be a window cleaner so that he can break in with his buddy. Yeah, um, well, not his buddy, no, but with Willie. Willie, yeah, Willie, actually. Willie is like Bumpy's bodyguard, and the two don't like each other. And so, in fact, they pretend to be window washers until Mescola is alone, and then they come in through the window. Shaft gets into a fist fight with him, and Willie just stands there the whole time <laughs> and <laughs> watches it. Yeah. Uh, he does grab a bottle, and so when... Pours himself a drink first, but then does use the bottle. As he, a, at the very end, when one of Mescola's men come, he brains him with the bottle. We get to this final culmination where... Kelly and his guys are digging up Asby's casket to get the money out of it. Mescola's guys show up in a helicopter and they force them to roll the bodies into the now empty grave, put the money in a bag. All of this is being watched by Shaft and Rita, Rita 
who is driving Shaft's muscle car. Mascola and his guys take the money and they shoot Kelly and throw him into the grave. But then Shaft grabs Mascola and the money and they throw him in the back of the car and take off, being pursued by Mascola's guys in a car and Mascola's guys in a helicopter. Which, to the New York Times comment about this is more Bond than Bogart, that this sequence, the, you would not see Humphrey Bogart going through this level of uh, planes, trains, and automobiles type chase scene. But for James Bond, this is par for the course. Yeah, so basically she is an expert driver. It turns out she's been racing since she was a kid and managed to eventually lose the car, but not the helicopter, you know, with Chef shooting at them. Eventually ending at the docks where Shaft grabs the money and Mescola and handcuffs him into a powerboat that he steals, makes the guy get out, and then he takes off on the water, still being pursued by the helicopter. This eventually leads us to the Navy Yard, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, where Mascola's men are still after him in the helicopter while he's on foot, having cr- grounded the speedboat and it explodes, and I'm not sure a speedboat would actually explode like that. They sort of make a point that Mascola's goons in the helicopter shoot the boat. The way you do, like, when you shoot any vehicle that has a gas tank and that makes it explode in the movies. So, <laughs> Yeah, I just don't think... I, I don't know that much about powerboats, but I always got the feeling that they didn't have very big gas tanks. Oh, know? yeah. No, I'm not suggesting that the explosion is reasonable, but isn't this like every vehicle that gets shot at, you know, has a yeah, chance guess, of exploding? I guess so. <laughs> um, Shaft hides the bag full of money in the high grass. Eventually, he manages to down the helicopter after a prolonged chase on foot from one of the guys, as well as the helicopter chasing him even into a hangar at one point. In the end, Shaft is the only one left alive (laughs) just as the cops arrive and want to know what happened. And he says he doesn't know what happened to the money, but he thinks it's headed back uptown. (laughs) You know, it's interesting comparing the character of Shaft to the saint, you know, in terms of how white is the white hat that these guys are wearing and... There are moments where Shaft doesn't shy away from violence. He's not afraid to get revenge. He sleeps around. Seems like a person who is pretty self-directed and self-focused. But then, on the other hand, there are these possibly extreme acts of selflessness, like donating $250,000 that he could easily have walked away with. I said that critics and audiences don't rate this as highly as... Shaft, the first film, I totally disagree. I think this is in almost all ways better than the first film. Mm-hmm. I disagree. All right. Well, I, uh, n- not for any flaws of the film, but I, the first film has a certain swagger and style that the second film doesn't lean into as much. Okay, so there's some notable differences here. One is 
it departs from most black exploitation films in that it doesn't have a funk soundtrack. It has a jazz soundtrack because Gordon Parks himself wrote and scored and played and performs even the singing parts, the music in this, all of the music in this. And remember, he was a jazz pianist. And I think the jazz music fits better with the P.I. Noir thing than the Earth, Wind, and Fire funk stuff did, with the exception of the Shaft theme, which was, of course, amazing. Isaac Hayes' Shaft theme. But other than that, now there may have been a difference for me because I'm a huge fan of optical media, and I watched the first one on DVD at Warner's, has done Shaft a great disservice. They issued it in both full screen and widescreen, you know, mm. on two sides. But both of them, even the widescreen isn't truly widescreen because I did side-by-side -side comparisons and I noticed that the full screen actually has full screen top to bottom and the widescreen is full screen left to right. But neither is truly full screen. Mm. And the quality of the transfer is not great. So I watched Chef's Big Score streaming and I think streaming has now reach blu-ray levels of quality which hadn't for a long time sometimes though i don't know if you found this like hit or miss sometimes amazon streaming of older titles the audio and the video don't line up no matter how many times you like turn off your roku and turn it all back on again and start over log out of amazon like whatever you do like they just don't seem to get it 100% every time. Well, I chose Apple TV to stream this particular one, and the picture quality and sound quality was excellent. Moses Gunn as Bumpy Jones gives another really great performance. I would have liked to have seen Gordon Parks actually as the director of photography, which he wasn't for the last one and he wasn't for this one, and have somebody else direct. I think his directing is not that strong in either a film. And I would rather see him bring on a different director and him be the director of photography. But still, his influence is there. The first one was pretty standard camera work. This, you had stuff like they're carrying the coffin in the funeral and the camera's low angle underneath the coffin and you just see the legs. Or there were a lot of times where there are these great shots and camera angles that you just didn't get that kind of a variety in the first film. Well, and the... The higher budget certainly helped with that. I'm sure it did. Those are two things I really liked. Both the look and the sound I thought were better than the first one. The plot was also better, I think. The first one had a very simple plot. This one had a much more twisty, detective-y sort of plot to it, where it's like, you don't know what's going on or who's screwing who until it all comes together, you know? I will say, at one point... Shaft hides in one of the caskets in the funeral home. and Oh, yeah, that, that was a fun moment. That's how he discovers that they've found out where the money's hidden. But I've been in a casket. And casket Say lids more. <laughs> are heavy as shit. So I had to have somebody else let me out. Now, he wasn't a half one, so he only had to lift half of the lid from the inside. But from my experience... Uh, getting out of a casket by yourself is not an easy thing to do, especially one of these, you know, fancy ones like they had in this funeral parlor. 
I'm not gonna. T- I'm not gonna. Yeah, no, I'm you not, ha- I you have to. There's no like. There are some things that that just I even on this podcast I won't go into. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically my take on it. Is that I liked this one even better than the first one. I recognize the cultural significance of the first one is greater because it was the first black exploitation film by a major studio as opposed to Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which was an independent film. But that's kind of my take on this. Well, definitely, definitely worth watching for sure. Totally solid detective film, as you said, and with some really excellent scenes like the the scenes with the dancers in her cut i haven't seen anything that artistically interesting in a long time i think that we're seeing gordon parks's influence there in one his music because he wrote and performed that music two his involvement with vogue and the high fashion world and all that i think is involved in the look of these like they're like runway models with these big feathers sticking out of their head and all that kind of stuff yeah i i i loved it i thought this was great let us know if you agree with johanna that shaft was better than shaft's big score or if you agree with me that shaft's big score is better than the original shaft by writing to us at GC8 podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. As always, I want to remind you to share this podcast with a friend of yours or a relative or something, or failing that, just give us a good, honest review of what you think of the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. Signing off. I didn't write down the name of the club, but I really liked the dancers. <laughs>